I met him at a dinner. It was the L.A. Single Gourmet. Okay, so it's kind of a dating group. Sort of, yeah. Mm -hmm. At any point in time, did the two of you have any physical relationship? I object to answering that. Well, you're I would not... say no. Okay, no. It's platonic, yes. And when you say platonic, can you define what you mean by that? We don't have a relationship in that where other people have, like, <laughs> we're best friends. The way that you and Mr. Durst refer to the love nest, that it would be a reasonable interpretation for somebody listening to that to believe that, you know what, they're more than friends. Yes, people could interpret it how they want. So if Bob Durst were to tell you that looks like my writing, that would be something you would disagree with? That would be up to him. I want you to assume for a moment that those envelopes contain roughly $115,000. Do you know how that got there? I would assume it was in there. I didn't put it in there. Were you aware at that time that if you had sent Bob Durst that kind of money, that potentially it could be a crime? No. We should be objecting. Welcome back to Season 2 of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. I'm joined by my co-host, Brittany Bookbinder. Last week, the prosecution in the trial of Robert Durst for the murder of Susan Berman presented evidence from some of the women who have close personal relationships with the man on trial. The jury heard from Susan Giordano, watched the conditional witness testimony of Jean Clark, and heard audio of Robert Durst's wife, Deborah Cheriton. In this episode, we'll examine the lengths that these witnesses have gone in order to protect Robert Durst and the facts behind their on-the-record testimony. We'll also speculate on the prosecution's strategy for introducing that testimony. That's coming up after the break. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Before we dive into this week's episode, we want to bring you an update on Robert Durst himself. Last week, Durst made his presence known in the courtroom, and yet another blow to the defense team's assertion that Durst is medically unable to participate in his own defense. The 78-year-old defendant urges attorneys to object when Deputy DA John Lewin asked Susan Giordano about Durst's statements regarding his history of domestic abuse towards his first wife, Kathy. So ma'am, I want you to assume that Mr. Durst has admitted to physically and emotionally abusing his wife, Kathy, on repeated occasions. We should be objecting. Although the subsequent objection was overruled, it was seen that Robert Durst's dissatisfaction with his defense team, who on another occasion Durst suggested was suffering from temporary insanity or collective dementia, has not abated. We'll discuss this and the latest developments in the trial later in this episode. 
If there is one common trait among Robert Durst's close friends, it seems to be their loyalty. Nowhere is this characteristic more apparent than among the women who have close personal relationships with Durst. There's also something else that those in Robert Durst's inner circle have in common. Do you know, if you have personal knowledge, if you are named as a beneficiary, Mr. Durst's will or trusts? Is that no, you don't have any knowledge, or no, you are definitely not named? I have no idea. That was Emily Altman. You may remember that back in late June, we reported on her conditional witness testimony. She's the wife of Stuart Altman, Durst's high school friend and real estate lawyer. Over the five days that Mrs. Altman spent on the witness stand, her testimony changed regarding several key pieces of information. There was one part of Emily's testimony, however, that remained consistent. She maintained that she had no knowledge that her and her husband's names appeared in Robert Durst's will. You denied any knowledge that you were aware that you were a beneficiary in Robert's Durst will. Do you recall that testimony? Yes. Is it your testimony, ma'am, that prior to me mentioning the will last Wednesday, that you expected to get nothing from Robert Durst upon his death? That's correct. Ma'am, do you know what happens in Bob's will if both Bob and his wife, Debbie, if, if Bob is dead and Debbie's not around to inherit, do you know what happens, ma'am? No. You and Stewart inherit his estate. Last week, the prosecution introduced new information on this subject. I want to change the will. Okay. Now I That was a phone call between Robert Durst and his wife, Deborah Chariton, in which he asked her to change his will. In both versions of the will, Deborah inherits Durst's considerable fortune upon his death. However, if Durst outlives his wife, he has decided to allocate $1 million to Jean Clark and $5 million to Susan Giordano. Who are Jean Clark and Susan Giordano? Later in this episode, we'll look at why the prosecution called them to testify and how they have shed light on Robert Durst's version of events in this case. First, we'd like to examine Durst's relationship with each of these women, beginning with his wife. He wrote about their wedding in the BD story, his diary and autobiography prepared in anticipation of his trial for the murder of Morris Black. The following is the complete entry on November 3rd, 2000. November 3, 2000. Ask Debbie to marry me. We get license. Their wedding was a private event with only Durst and Chariton in attendance, along with a rabbi that they had chosen from a phone book. Although according to journalist Charles Bagley, Durst told his sister Wendy that it was a marriage of convenience, and although the couple did not live together for many years, it appears that, at one time, they did have a romantic relationship. In the 1990s, Durst rented an apartment in Manhattan where they lived together. A decade later, after Durst had been tried and acquitted for the murder of Morris Black, Deborah negotiated with the Durst family in order to extricate her husband's money from the family trust. According to reports, of the over $60 million that Durst received from that settlement, Deborah collected $20 million for herself. 
Although they've spent much of their marriage physically apart, Durst referred to Deborah at one time in his life as his, quote, only friend, end quote. When he served time in Pennsylvania following his Galveston trial, the two spoke often. A frequent topic of their conversations was Durst's brother, Douglas. The following is from a jailhouse phone call that the prosecution played on Monday, July 19th. And do you know what I told you the other day about Douglas when we were talking, what I said I thought you were going to do? Remember? No. We were talking, you were telling me about what your life has been like and what you were thinking. Yeah, my, 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 my plan. Yeah. Okay. I'm definitely but, not going to say okay, it. Okay, but you told me what your plans were. Well, and I told you that I knew, I had a feeling, I suspected. Remember? You know, I certainly screwed it up, didn't I? Well, never mind that. But if I suspected, he too suspected what I'm trying to say. You didn't really focus well, on Well, that. something I I, 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 I think I left this out. Did I tell you that I went to his Kona house while I was in Danbury? Uh, I think I read that you did, but I didn't. I don't remember if you told me. Well, you read somebody. I mean, I think I told these, you know, the Mike Kennedy types that I was driving around these places. I grew up, my family places. And oh, this. it was in the newspaper then. Yeah, yeah, but 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 I, I really went. The next time we, we have a visiting day, I'll go over it with you. I, I'd like I, to hear it, but I, I, I sort of left that out. Okay, but I just want you to know that. Remember what I told you? I thought you were going to do. He knew it too. Keep that in mind. I think that if he was concerned about that, he wouldn't have been treating me so bad. I disagree. What? I don't agree with you. He's treating you because pretty bad. Because he thought I would screw it up like I did? <laughs> Maybe he's right. I guess he is right then. Let me know. If, if you're remember right... remember that if I knew it, he knew it. That's my point. Douglas Durst testified to the incident being discussed here. When his security team informed him of his brother's presence on his Katona property... Douglas and his family escaped to safety. While neither Deborah nor Bob say explicitly what Bob intended, the implications of these comments in the context of Douglas's fear makes this conversation particularly chilling. Although Deborah and Robert Durst remain married, they have not lived together for many years. And according to a New York Times article, Deborah lived with one of Durst's lawyers, Stephen Holm, until his death in 2019. Curiously, Holmes' obituary in Real Estate Weekly says, quote, Mr. Holm passed away peacefully at his home surrounded by his family and friends, including his wife, Deborah Lee Chariton. Chariton has remained married to Robert Durst since their November 2000 wedding. Durst has also looked elsewhere for companionship. That's where Gene Clark enters the picture. I met him at a dinner. This was a group dinner. There were 20 or 30 people. It was just a social event. It was the L.A. Single Gourmet. Okay. So it's kind of a dating group. Sort of, yeah. Mm -hmm. Clark's conditional witness testimony, which was recorded in 2018, was played for the jury last week. Although Durst and Jean went out, she insists they did not have a romantic relationship. At that point in time, I'm talking about when you're going to these dinners. Did the two of you actually end up, for lack of a better term, dating? We did go to dinner, yes. And when you went to dinner, was this by yourselves? Yes. Did you consider it a romantic <coughs> date, or did you consider it platonic? I considered it a friendship. Who paid? He did. At any point in time, did the two of you have any physical relationship? I object to answering that. Well, you're I not... I would say no. Okay, no. 
While Clark testified that they were not romantically involved, it's clear that they had an intimate friendship. Gene spoke to Durst often and even visited him in Houston. Did you ever visit Mr. Durst in Houston? Yes. Can you describe the circumstances of that? Yes, um, he had been unable to travel and been in the hospital. So I traveled to Houston in order to visit him. When you were in Houston, where'd you stay? In his uh, condominium. Later in his examination, Lewin returned to this point. So ma'am, this is my question. You meet a man at basically it's a singles group, correct? Correct. You're going to that singles group because you're hoping you might find um, somebody you're compatible with, correct? Part of the reason. And ma'am, would it be fair to say that in assessing compatibility, someone who's a suspect in murdering his wife, that might influence whether or not you're looking at this guy as companion material? No, because my only, my intention of going to that singles group was socializing. So ma'am, even as you sit here today, testimony would be that Mr. Durst alleged history of being a suspect in the disappearance of his wife, the murder of his best friend, and the killing and dismemberment of Morris Black, that was information that you did not think was really relevant to any relationship you might have had with Mr. Durst. Is that correct? That is correct. When you flew to, to Houston, you stayed at Mr. Durst's residence, correct? Correct. Well, ma'am, so prior to going to Houston, you're going to be staying with the man what you wanted to say to him, hey, Bob, gosh, I'm reading on the internet, it says you killed your neighbor and you hacked him up. Something you might have asked him or not something you were concerned with? No, I did not ask that. In hindsight, is that something that, gosh, you know what, I, I might ask that question. No, that was not affecting my decision. I was not concerned with it. But ma'am, my question to you was, you found out about his background, and your response to that was, according to you, not to ask him word one about it, but instead to go down to Texas and spend time with him in his residence. That's true. So I'm asking you to explain that, ma'am. I cannot explain it. Okay. It appears that the prosecution's strategy is to discredit Jean by demonstrating that, as a result of her financially beneficial relationship with Robert Durst, her loyalty to him is so strong that she is willing to overlook any transgression. The prosecution also suggests that Clark is incentivized and would not hesitate to lie on Durst's behalf. At one point during her testimony, she denied speaking to Durst about his alleged involvement in Susan Berman's murder. Have you ever talked to Mr. Durst about the handwriting issues? in this case during your jail conversations? No, I don't think so. The prosecution then confronted Jean with a recording of a jailhouse call between her and Robert Durst. The whole thing is gonna deal with my handwriting and whether I spell Beverly, B-E-V-E-R-L-Y or L-E-Y. Yes. Do you ever remember me writing anything to you? Yes. I always misspelled Beverly? No, I don't know that. <coughs> Say that again. No, I did not know that you misspelled Beverly. Well, in the, in the HBO thing, that was a great big deal. I saw that. The prosecution then asked Clark about that call. 
Ma'am, does that refresh your recollection about you specifically speaking to Mr. Durst about his spelling of Beverly? Mm -hmm. Yes. Did you think it was an important detail, ma'am, that Mr. Durst was confronted with a letter that had Beverly spelled wrong and then was shown the cadaver note on TV and couldn't distinguish which one he had written and which one he hadn't? Did you consider that significant? I don't think I was paying that much attention. Have you ever seen a depiction of that envelope before? Um, no. You don't recall that envelope playing a significant role in the movie The Jinx? No, I don't remember all of the movie. By the way, does that look like anybody's writing that you know? No. Does it look like Bob Durst's writing? It doesn't look like anybody I know. So if Bob Durst were to tell you, were to say, you know what? That looks like my writing. Would that be something you would disagree with? That would be up to him. Well, ma'am, you corresponded with Mr. Durst. You know what his writing looks like, uh, I did not correspond with him. He's never sent you a letter? No. Are you sure about that, ma'am? Yes. Again, Gene Clark's conditional witness testimony was recorded in 2018. That was back when Robert was still denying that he wrote the so-called cadaver note and long before his attorney stipulated to the fact that he did in fact write it. The prosecution appears to be using her prevarication about Bob's writing the note to demonstrate the lengths to which she will go in order to protect him. The prosecution seems to have a similar narrative intention in presenting the testimony of another close female friend of Robert Durst. Susan Giordano provided testimony in court last week that goes to the heart of the prosecution's narrative in their case against Robert Durst. She was questioned by Deputy DA John Lewin. How would you describe your current relationship with Robert Durst? We were very dear friends. We don't speak very often now, but we, he's a very dear friend of mine. And when you say friend, would that be the extent of what you would call the relationship? It's platonic, yes. And when you say platonic, can you define what you mean by that? We don't have a relationship in that where other people have, like, we're best friends. We were, I don't understand, platonic is best friends with someone. I mean, obviously, Mr. Durst is in custody, so you could not have a sexual relationship with him now because he's in custody, correct? And I did not in the past. So if I were to ask you, do you consider you and Mr. Durst to have in any way a romantic relationship, what would be your answer? We do not have a romantic relationship. Have you ever had a romantic relationship? No. Lewin pushed back on her assessment of their relationship based on the language she's used and the plans they've made. Um, do you love Bob Durst? Absolutely. Have you told him repeatedly that you love him? Absolutely. Do you talk about in the numerous phone calls you've had with him spending the rest of your lives together? I have, yes. Do you talk about living together in the same house together? Um, yes. And is it your opinion, ma'am, that that is the definition of a platonic, just friendly relationship? Yes. The house that they planned on living in together, which Giordano has called a love nest, came up several times during Susan's testimony. Ma'am, would you agree that... The way that you and Mr. Durst refer to the love nest 
and to how you love each other, that it would be a reasonable interpretation for somebody listening to that to believe that, you know what, they're more than friends. Yes, people could interpret it how they want. <laughs> and ma'am, do you speak that way to any of your other friends? Um, I don't have any other male friends. Although Susan maintains that they never had a physical relationship, she testified that before she even met Robert Durst, she wanted to date him. Now, I want to go way back, and I want you to tell us, how did you and Bob Durst originally meet? Way back, I started working at an ad agency, and I did want to meet Mr. Durst, and there's a mutual friend that we had. Who's the mutual friend? Nick Chavin. As we reported in season one of Jury Duty, Nick Chavin is a close friend of Bob Durst, who has offered explosive testimony in the case against him. More on that in a minute. Nick and I worked at the same agency. I didn't work for him at the time. So I knew Nick Chavin, and I wanted to meet Bob Durst. I was single. Bob was very busy at the time. Uh, so it, it took me a very long time. When was this approximately? What year? First time I wanted to go out it was 1987. And how old were you back then? I was 21. And fair to say Mr. Durst would have been 44, is that right? Yes. And you had an interest in Mr. Durst, is that correct? Yes. Did you know that Mr. Durst was wealthy? <laughs> Not at 21, no. I just knew he was a friend of Nick and he was a client. When did you learn that he was as wealthy as he is? It was a few years later. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Robert Durst's wealth and the large sums of money that he has given Susan over the years became recurring themes throughout her testimony. Ma'am, would yeah. you agree that as you sit up here today testifying, that you have a financial motivation to keep yourself in good graces with Bob Durst? No, I, it's unconditional. How much money has Bob Durst given you over the years? 300,000. In total, how much money has Bob Durst either directly or indirectly given to you or your family members in total? Um, I don't, I, I don't, I, well, maybe there was uh, 15,000 more in my, in the bills that I had. I, I really don't know exactly. As with Jean Clark, it appears that the prosecution's aim was to demonstrate that Susan Giordano would rather prevaricate or lie rather than say anything that might incriminate Robert Durst. In order to show the lengths that Giordano has gone to conceal the truth from authorities, the prosecution asked her about a favor she did for Robert Durst when he was on the run following the fifth episode of The Jinx. He called you from New Orleans. Do you recall testifying to that? Yes. Did he ask you to do something? Yes. He wanted me to send him um, luggage that he had in New York. In subsequent interviews, Durst has said that his intention was to escape to Cuba. 
As Lewin continued to question Susan on the matter of Durst's suitcases, she described a rushed trip to his Manhattan apartment where she haphazardly packed him some clothes. So what do you put inside the suitcases? I literally didn't pack neatly. I kind of threw just a few items and a pair of shoes, a shirt and a sweater, um, his shoes. The prosecution then displayed a photograph of the suitcases that showed what was at the bottom, hidden underneath the clothing. Ma'am, do you know what that is? They're envelopes. I I want you to assume, Mm ma'am, that when that suitcase was opened, Mm -hmm. underneath the clothes and the shoes were those envelopes. I want you to assume for a moment that those envelopes contain roughly $115,000 that they were inside the suitcase when the FBI opened it. Yes, that's what I was told. Do you know how that got there? I would assume it was in there. I didn't put it in there. The prosecution then asked why Susan failed to mention the suitcases she had sent in her initial interview with authorities. You didn't mention it until Agent Perry told you the following. Quote, I can't stress enough that you need to be crystal clear with me right now about what you did and what you tried and what stuff you've sent to Bob, because what I have in here isn't gonna look very good for you, okay? So that's what Investigator Perry told you, correct? Correct. And once he said that, you knew, uh uh-oh, the FBI is here, and they're basically telling me, if I tell any more lies, I could be in trouble. Is that true? He asked me, I answered him. Actually, Eric Perry said I should have looked through it because there could be a gun in there. And I said, well, I certainly hope there isn't because I didn't look through it. Were you aware at that time that if you had sent Bob Durst that kind of money, that potentially it could be a crime? No. So in your mind, you had no reason to deny anything because uh, there was nothing wrong with sending $115,000 hidden beneath clothes and shoes in a suitcase to an alias of another individual. That was your position. You thought that was okay. I didn't know there was money, so why did I think I would do something wrong? John Lewin also asked Susan Giordano whether Robert Durst made another request of her when he feared a criminal investigation. Did Bob Durst bring up the idea to you of providing him with a false alibi for the week that Susan Berman was murdered? No. The suggestion that Robert Durst asked Susan Giordano to provide him with an alibi echoes the prosecution's allegation that he made the same request of Susan Berman nearly four decades ago. When Giordano denied having this conversation with Durst, Lewin confronted her with statements that she made to the producers of The Jinx during a recorded interview. Did you also tell Mark and Andrew during that same interview that Bob asked you where you were that night and what you were doing during the holidays? No. Did you also tell Mark and Andrew that you told Bob in response that you were at a large family gathering on Christmas Eve in New York, but that he had nothing to worry about if he wasn't at the scene of Berman's murder? Did you say that to Mark and Andrew? No. Oh, wait, I might have said it out of conversation, but that didn't have a conversation with Bob included in it. No, I might have said to him, yes, because, yes. Okay. Yes. Did you tell Mark and Andrew during that 3-15-15 interview that you responded to Bob, that you told Bob, quote, to just be with Debbie since it was only a month after they got married? That's at page 31, line 19. 
probably said you should have been with Debbie, so how can you not be? And maybe it's not the holiday, so. Did you say that? I don't recall. I don't recall. Did you further say, ma'am, that Bob said to you in response to your comment of just be with Debbie, that Bob said that although it was only a month after they got married, that Debbie, his wife, had already told someone that she didn't think Bob was with her that night? I don't remember. Did you tell Jarecki and Sperling that Bob told you that for that reason, he could not say that he had been with Debbie when Susan was murdered? I really don't remember. The prosecution then asked Susan about statements she made during an interview with investigators the following month. For saying to Bob, something like that, hey, listen, Bob, I can't say you were with me. I was with Chris, I was at Christmas with 30 people. They're going to know you weren't there. Right. Does that refresh your memory now? Yes, I exactly said, actually, to um, Detective Becerra, I think it was. And, but it wasn't, like, Bob said to me once, everybody needs to know where everybody is. That's something like that. But he never once requested it. I just said, if you were with me, you would remember. I have a very large family, and I know where I am every Christmas Eve. But he never once would ask me for an alibi. We never spoke of an alibi. He never spoke about Susan Berman. Ma'am, so at the time that this issue was coming up, yes. you were aware that Bob Durst's version of events was that he was not in Los Angeles, correct? Yes. You were aware that his position at that time was, I did not write the cadaver, correct? Yes. You were aware at that time, ma'am, that his position was, I did not find Susan's body, correct? Yes. And in fact, ma'am, were you aware you said you watched the jinx, that Bob Durst had said that the cadaver note was a letter that only the killer could have written? Yes. Well, ma'am, you're now aware that Bob Durst wrote the cadaver note, correct? Yes. And you're aware that Bob Durst has said it's a note that only the killer could have written, correct? Yes. What does that mean? I can't tell you um, why he said it. Um, I don't know. Well, ma'am, what it means in general I... language that Bob is saying he's the killer. Okay. What? Said a yes, ma'am? According to what he said, but I... Yeah, so according to Bob's statement, you're saying, yep, he's saying he's the killer, but you don't know if that's actually true. Is that what you're saying now? Oh, that's right. Exactly. Besides Giordano's denial that Durst asked her to give him an alibi, perhaps the most significant aspect of Giordano's testimony came when the prosecution asked her about her conversations with Nick Chavin. In their opening statement last year, the prosecution played for the jury Nick Chavin's recorded testimony from 2017, in which he revealed that Robert Durst confessed to killing Susan Berman. Chavin is expected to testify in person within the next few weeks. In his questioning of Giordano, Deputy District Attorney John Lewin indicated that there were conversations between Giordano and Chavin related to Robert Durst, about which Chavin will testify. Did you ever tell Nick Chavin that the defense wanted to know what Nick Chavin had said to me? No. Did you ever tell Nick Chavin that the defense was determined to find out what he was going to say in court? No. Did you ever tell Nick Chavin that Bob's lawyers had told you that they wanted to know if Nick knew that Bob was being extorted by Susan? No. 
Do you have any knowledge of Bob Durst being extorted by Susan? No. Have you ever said to Nick that Bob is, quote, sick to death that Nick is going to say something to the prosecution that is very bad for him, unquote? No. Have you ever said anything similar like that to Nick Chabin at all? No. Me meaning ever involving any concern that he's going to share information that he has that is damaging to Mr. Durst? No. Did you ever tell Nick Chabin that he was the most pivotal, important witness in this case? No. The prosecution's efforts to impeach Giordano's credibility in the eyes of the jury seem to have been intended to set up how this jury would assess any evidence she might offer to support the narrative of Robert Durst's defense. Ma'am, you are aware that Nick Chavin and Bob Durst had a dinner in Manhattan in 2014, correct? You're aware that that dinner took place? Yes. Has Bob Durst ever confirmed to you that that dinner took place? Yes. When did you become aware, ma'am, that Bob Durst had confessed, according to Nick Chavin, at that dinner or after that dinner? When did you become aware of that? Whenever he was in court. Have you ever asked Bob about it? No. Why not? Because Nick's, well, I didn't ask him. Finally, the prosecution asked Susan to assess Robert Durst's honesty. Ma'am, are you aware of any instance where Bob Durst has ever lied to you? No, uh, I don't think so. Ma'am, didn't he tell you for 20 years that he was never in Los Angeles at the time of Susan Burton's murder? You've testified to that already. I never asked him. I never asked him. Ma'am, listen to my question. You previously testified today yes. that for 20 years, Bob Durst has said to you that he was not in Los Angeles at the time that Susan Berman was murdered, correct? You testified to that. You didn't tell me personally. You said to me earlier, if you look, that's what the news said, or he has never once personally said to me anything to do with Susan Berman case. Ma'am, in your experience, is Bob Durst an honest person? Yes. Based on everything you know about Bob Durst, your relationship, the statements you heard him make, the testimony you are aware of, everything you personally know about Bob Durst, in total, do you believe him to be an honest person? Yes, he changes his mind, but he's an honest person. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. To discuss these developments in the trial of Robert Durst, we are joined by reporter Charlie Bagley, who is covering the case for the New York Times and for CrimeStory.com. Charlie, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Good to be here. So tell me your thoughts on why we heard so much from Gene Clark and Susan Giordano this week. Well, I, I think the reasons were a little different with each woman. 
Jean Clark, who lives in California, is, uh, I guess we could call her Bob's West Coast girlfriend. You know, she has hung out with him quite a bit. And she's also talked to him quite a bit on the phone while he was in prison. There was a lot of questioning about exactly what she knew about him. And Jeannie Clark was a tough nut to crack. This is a 70-year-old woman on the stand being asked about her sex life. And she would not give Lewin an inch. We heard Bob in a recording describing how he would like to give her a million dollars. And I suppose in the back of the prosecution's mind is, well, why would he give her a million dollars? Bob is not an especially generous individual. With Bob's East Coast girlfriend, Susan Giordano, Bob had stored 64 cartons of his private papers. There were family photographs. There were phone bills that allowed, eventually allowed the authorities to track his movements. And Bob gave the producers of the Jinx access to these boxes. So this was a treasure trove in her basement. What do you make of the prosecution's efforts to pin them down about whether the relationship was romantic? Well, I think what they were trying to get at is to crack what they perceived as perhaps another lie. So the probing, I think, was designed to assess the veracity of anything that they said. It wasn't because of some fascination with Bob's sex life. And do you think the same thing would be true of when the prosecution asked Susan Giordano about how before she had really met him and she you know, was working with Nick Chavin and wanted to meet him and, and she denied having any knowledge of him being from a, a wealthy family. Do you think there was a similar motivation behind asking her about that? Yes. So I, I think they were doing two things. One is trying to expose her, the truthfulness of whatever she told us. And also it would probably eliminate both her and Jeannie Clark as any kind of character witnesses for Bob. Well, Bob Durst, total heartthrob. Also, can you talk about the updates we had this week? I think for a lot of people following along with this case, the jinx was an entry point. And I think a lot of people expected for it to... Uh, you know, play a role in the trial and to hear directly from Andrew Jarecki and Mark Smerling. Um, and it sounds like that is not going to happen. Can can you talk about the, sure. the new stipulations? I, I have to confess, a couple of years ago, I wrote uh, an article in the New York Times explaining that that the jinx was going to be on trial when when Bob was arraigned in Los Angeles. Now, as it turned out, contrary to my article, uh, There were a number of court rulings with respect to this and also a very shrewd decision on the part of the prosecutor. And he said from the beginning, I'm not playing the jinx. I'm playing the raw tape of Bob talking about himself and responding to questions. So you can judge for yourselves what's true and what's not true. So ultimately, they agreed to a stipulation that lays out the history of the contacts between Bob Durst, who initiated contact with Andrew Jarecki. And Charlie, what lies ahead? Feels like we're winding down here, doesn't it? Oh, I absolutely. I, I think there's a palpable sense we're in the final stretch. 
And today in court, uh, the prosecutor, John Lewin, uh, alluded to as much. He, he seemed to be saying that next week, at the end of next week, he would rest the prosecution's case. And then what happens after the prosecution rests? Will we hear from Bob Durst himself? Well, they've been saying from the beginning, they said in their opening statements, that Bob will testify. And since he reversed himself after 19 years of denying that he was even in Los Angeles, Bob almost certainly has to take the stand to give meat to this new version of events. So if the defense decides not to put Bob on the stand, they're opening up a huge dilemma for themselves because it means that all the things that they talked about in their opening statements, all of that is out if he doesn't testify to it. Charlie Bagley, thank you for being with us. Brittany, thanks as always for co-hosting with me. Great to be here. Thank you. The end is in sight. Yes, it is. And stay with us. As the trial of Robert Durst for the murder of Susan Berman winds down, we're going to bring you up-to-the-minute coverage of all the proceedings. And particularly, if and when Robert Durst testifies, we're going to give in-depth analysis and coverage of that testimony here on Jury Duty, the trial of Robert Durst. Please remember that you can receive alerts and news breaks on developments in Robert Durst's murder trial, as well as new episodes of Season 2 of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, by subscribing now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Again, if you want to refresh your memory on where the prosecution and defense are heading with their arguments in the trial, go back and re-listen to episodes from Season 1. And head over to CrimeStory.com for in-depth coverage of the Durst story. Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, is created and produced by Carrie Antholis. This episode was written and edited by yours truly, Brittany Bookbinder. It was co-produced by Alexis Notabartolo and Brittany Bookbinder. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you'll come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst.